Hi there, my name is Misty Denman. I'm part of the Women in the Word teaching team and I'm so glad we get to do this together. I've been thinking a lot as we're nearing in on a year of this pandemic that it's still hard to be isolated, but I'm still really grateful we get to do this together and the technology to do it this way exists. So we're gonna just um, choose gratitude or at least I'm gonna try to choose gratitude today and um, get to share this along with you. Well, I love a good courtroom drama. I know I'm not the only one because there are tons of stories, TV, movies, books um, set in courtrooms. My love for um, this genre started when I was really young and watched black and white reruns on a little television in our house of Perry Mason. And I can totally picture him in my mind still. Um, just thought he was really cool. Later on, I loved LA Law. I loved the drama of it and the glamour and the kind of the office intrigue and I have always loved those high drama courtroom scenes you know where someone's pounding on a podium or someone traps somebody on the witness stand and the hush of the jury and all of that kind of thing and I think all of us um, know and love that iconic courtroom scene in A Few Good Men with Jack Nicholson and Tom Cruise and that was one of those lines of you know you can't handle the truth that we've said in our family for lots and lots of years so I think that um, is a form of uh, entertainment and drama that we all um, are familiar with and many of us love. And I probably need to say also that LA Law hasn't been on in, I don't know, since the late 80s or something. So there may be things in it that are totally inappropriate. I don't remember. This is not an endorsement of it. I just remember being young and thinking how glamorous it all was. Uh, but that human need to prove truth to disprove um, lies, to be in front of our peers and vindicate and justify uh, truth, that need for protection of, that good laws offer uh, is not new to modern times. I've actually been intrigued to notice how many stories all the way through scriptures feature mediation and judges and uh, laws and courtrooms, um, Old Testament all the way through new. And it's a motif that John uses a lot in his book. We've already seen John be very careful to point out the testimony of credible witnesses as proof that Jesus is Messiah um, and the Son of God in the first few chapters of John. During his time on earth, eyewitnesses would provide evidence to the truth of who Jesus was for those who were willing to see and believe. The same eyewitnesses that are recorded here give proof to those of us that are willing to see and believe. The scenes that play out in John chapter five don't happen in one of those dark paneled, high ceilinged, imposing courtrooms before a judge in black, but there is a courtroom here. It's a courtroom of the heart of every man and woman who encounters Jesus. Jesus presents the proof of who he is and what he's about and then he allows the hearer to choose whether or not to believe. Jesus' way is not that of um, fiery and dramatic speeches pounding on the witness stand, and yet there has never been any testimony or evidence that has mattered more in all of human history. So as we begin reading chapter five today, I hope we can all look at this through both this courtroom and this courtroom in our hearts as well. So if you will, Open up your Bibles with me to John chapter five, uh, starting in verse two. 
And I'll read verses two through nine. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool, an Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him laying there and knew he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up and while I'm going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. So here we see Jesus displays his power and reveals his compassion for a suffering humanity that he came to say when he performs this very public miracle of healing. And we're soon going to see that Jesus' choice to perform that sign both in public and on the Sabbath were purposeful decisions. You know, in fact, one of the things I'm learning as we study John is that nothing Jesus ever did or said was by chance. Every action and word were purposeful and had meaning. Every word recorded by the Bible's authors is purposeful and has meaning. And I've kind of been getting something extra out of our study, keeping that knowledge at the front of my mind. So we can get a picture in our minds, and we did this in our homework as well, of sort of what this scene might have looked like. It would have been near the temple, near a gate where the sheep that were used for sacrifice would have been herded in. And there was this spring-fed pool there, uh, surrounded by great numbers of people. It was probably a pretty dirty, desperate, hungry, lonely, smelly crowd of humanity. And they're there because there was a belief that once somebody stirred up that spring-fed pool, the first person who went and got down in it, um, once that was done, would be healed. So that's why that crowd is there. Now, if we were passers-by that crowd, I have a feeling many of us, and I put myself in this crowd as well, um, or in that group as well, would have probably had an impulse to take the long way around and not get too near them. Um, we might not would have interacted with the men and women laying there uh, because of how desperate they were, because of the sounds and smells we would have um, been a part of. And I think also because it's hard um, to feel that feeling of helplessness in the face of deep suffering. But not Jesus. He walked right in the middle of that crowd of suffering humanity and he singles this one man out and he asks him a question. Do you want to be healed? This man doesn't answer Jesus directly, which I've, I still find very interesting even after I've studied it a long time. Instead, as he explains that he has tried and tried to get down into that pool and he hasn't been able to, Jesus simply stops and speaks words of healing. Isaiah foretold this. Look with me at Isaiah 35 on your verse sheet. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. I love that verse. This, like all of Jesus' miracles, is evidence of his authority and power over all creation. So I wanna look back for a second at this question that Jesus asked the paralyzed man, do you want to be healed? 
I first wondered why he would ask that. Of course, the man that's laying there at that place where one hopes for healing and who has been an invalid for almost 40 years would want to be healed. But I know Jesus asked that question with a purpose. And I think one of those purposes was to make that man think. Do you really and truly, do you really want to get better? Or are you deep down inside kind of comfortable with your situation? Are you so comfortable with your life sort of the way it is, even if it's not ideal, that you don't want to change? You know, I've decided that from time to time, we all need to ask ourselves that question as well. Not necessarily related to physical healing, but to our spiritual and emotional health. As I studied this story, and I have to confess, um, I, I didn't like the way this man answered the question and kind of dodged it. Um, I, I had to look and decide that there have been times in my own life when I knew I was stuck in a, a pattern of sin that needed to be confessed and replaced by obedience to God's word. I needed to pray um, and keep on praying to God, for God to heal me and help me for my own good um, and for the good of those around me. But there have been times when I have chosen for too long not to bring sin before the Lord because I kind of wanted to keep wallowing in self-pity or anger or resentment um, so that I had an excuse um, for my bad behavior and for feeling the way I did. Jesus did not force healing on this man at the pool even though it was in the man's best interest. And he doesn't force healing on me or you either. I've learned that I have to want Jesus' healing hand in my life and the restoration that he brings more than I want to hold on to my righteous anger or my self-pity or my resentment um, or my martyr complex or whatever it is. I've also learned that I don't always get to that place on my own. Um, when the Lord pricks my conscience with that, I realized I have had to say, Lord, you are gonna have to give me the desire to put this at your feet. You're gonna have to give me the strength to do that and the, and the will to let go of these things and let you heal me of that. Um, and that's where that process of obedience and healing has begun with me. Look with me at Psalm 103 on your verse sheet. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like an eagle's. That is what Jesus offered this man, and it's what he offers us each day as well. And I want to grab hold of that. I want all of us to do that. Let's continue reading in verses 10 through 17 here. So the Jews, and remember that are that is the Jewish authority, said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. They asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. 
So here we'll see two significant responses to the healing of the man at the pool. We see how the man himself responded, and then we see how the Jewish leadership responds. First, let's look at the leadership. This interaction between Jesus and the ruling authorities marks a turning point in the book of John. From this point on, the religious authorities will be opposed to Jesus. And here, the leadership strongly opposes Jesus because he healed on the Sabbath. Everything Jesus did and said was purposeful. He could have picked any day of the week he wanted to to heal this man. So to understand why Jesus chose the Sabbath, we need to probably look back at what God's original plan for the Sabbath was and how that purpose had been twisted over the years. God's law, which was given to Moses for the nation of Israel, required that there be a day of rest on the seventh day of the week. That Sabbath law was given by God to the people as a gift. It created a rhythm to the week and protected a day for rest, for renewal, for worship. It was a good thing. But over time, the religious authorities had added all kinds of tedious and minute specifications of their own making to the original law. And the result was what was meant by God to be a blessing became nothing more than a complicated burden on the people. And that comes to light right here because one of the man-made Sabbath laws prevented anyone from carrying something from a public place to a private place and to do so was considered work and was punishable by death. I, th I wanna make it very clear here that this Sabbath practice was not God's original idea. In fact, God found this to be loathsome the way it had been twisted and added to over the years. And it won't be the last time in the gospels that Jesus deliberately challenges the legalism and the self-righteousness of the Pharisees who are enforcing these man-made laws. So here was a man who hadn't been able to walk for 38 years. He's on his feet, it's a literal miracle. There's no joy, there's no awe, there's no worship from those who are watching. There's condemnation, and that is not how God meant it to be. So I'm not a huge fan of how the man who healed chose to respond. I've said that before to this situation. But it does help me to understand that harsh and oppressive, oppressive system. It gives us some insight into how he answers the Jewish leadership when they tell him he can't be carrying around his bedroll in the Sabbath. People have been uh, dodging responsibility for their own choices since the Garden of Eden. It's exactly what you see him doing here. He's like, I'm just over here doing what that guy told me to do. He cares way more about the people around him and what they think than he does about his healer um, and potentially his savior. It appears to me that as soon as this man was healed, he walked off and never turned back. Um, it doesn't look like there was an interaction between he and Jesus right after he was healed. There's no record that this man ever came to a saving faith. There's no record that he even gave a simple thank you. I don't wanna be that person. And I don't want any of us to be that person who happily accepts the gifts of God, but pays minimal attention to the giver, who craves what God has to give us but doesn't crave God himself. I don't wanna pay so much attention to the things that we want and even the things we need um, that I forget to pursue a relationship with the Lord himself. And I do want us to live life with overwhelming gratitude, remembering to give glory to God when those good things do come and he is the giver of all good things. Look with me at both Matthew 6 and Psalm 9 on your verse sheet. 
But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all these things will be added to you. And then I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exalt in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. Hunger for God himself and not just his gifts. And when he gives those good gifts, acknowledge him and give thanks with joy and with gratitude. Okay, let's continue on. We'll pick up our reading in verse 18. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even, even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. For the father loves the son and shows him all that he is, himself is doing. And greater works than these he will show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not truly honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man." So here, Jesus gives words or gives testimony to his own authority. If you have one of those Bibles where the words of Jesus are in red, you will notice this whole section to the very end of the chapter is all in red. These are Jesus' own words. And every word he packs here is, or uh, says here is packed with significance, some real foundational theology that our faith stands on. Uh, it's going to be necessary as we talk through this, I think, to use both our heads and our hearts to really take in what Jesus uh, is saying about himself. I also think it will help to have your Bible open and kind of go through this. We're gonna kind of talk about some of this verse by verse. And because Jesus fires off statement after statement of real densely packed truth, we could spend a lot longer than we have today talking about each of these things. We're gonna only spend a few minutes um, on these statements, but I hope that as we continue through the book of John and as you come across other, um, uh, when you read other gospels as well, you'll come back to the sort of the foundation that's set here that Jesus lays down about himself and sort of add to your layer of understanding about uh, who Jesus is and, and the implications of that for our own lives. Before we go on, I wanna look back real quick at verse 17. It's after the Jewish leadership publicly opposed Jesus for breaking the Sabbath. And in verse 17, Jesus says, or, or John says, Jesus answered them. In the original language, that word answered is a, is a pretty rarely used verb form that's only used in the context of trials in courtrooms when a formal legal defense is uh, being made against a charge. 
So John is purposeful in using that word answered there by telling us that uh, not only is Jesus sort of answering the Pharisees' immediate questions about healing on the Sabbath, but he's basically giving a legal defense to those leaders who are accusing him of a capital crime, of causing somebody to, or him working on the Sabbath and the healing, and then causing someone else to work on the Sabbath. So Jesus is essentially on trial here. Uh, and I'll bet for most of us, when we suddenly find ourselves on trial, we go on the defense, or at least I do. What I like here is that's not what Jesus does. He said he sort of turns the tables on the Pharisees and goes on the offense. The Pharisees think they have jurisdiction over Jesus, but he sort of very calmly and methodically explains that the Father has given him all authority to judge all of humanity across history. It's... Um, I guess it could be sort of subtle the way he does that, but it's not if you listen carefully to his words. Verse 18 is a summary statement. It's, uh, inter it, John interjects this right in the midst of Jesus' own words. It's not to be missed because if what Jesus says is not true, then it is blasphemy. But we know that it is true. And Jesus goes on to explain what he means when he says that he is equal with God the Father. Now, verse 19 starts out with those words, truly, truly. You've seen those before a few times in the first four chapters of John. Your translation might say, verily, verily. 25 times in the book of John, Jesus starts out a statement with truly, truly. And when we see those words, I think it means pay really careful attention. To me, it's sort of like when a mom brings her child's face up real close to hers and says, look at me and listen. What I'm saying is really important here. So um, look for that when you see those truly, truly statements all throughout John. In 19, verse 19, Jesus says about himself, truly, truly, the son can do nothing on his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. Jesus is fully God. He has full equality with the father in every way. And yet his function within the Trinity, the father, son, and the Holy Spirit, God, three in one, is that of a son who willingly submits himself to the will of the father in all things. He chooses to align himself perfectly with the work of what the Father is doing. He chooses to never act independently of the Father. The Father and the Son have perfect unity. In verse 21, Jesus tells us another aspect of his equality with the Father. The Father gives life and so does the Son. To who does Jesus give life? To whoever he, uh, uh, to whoever he chooses because he's fully man and he's fully the sovereign God. What does Jesus mean when he says he gives life? It means he gives eternal life, salvation to all who trust in his name by grace through faith. But it also means he gives an abundant full life at that point of salvation and from then on to those who are his and who believe in his name. One of my favorite all-time verses is 2 Corinthians 5.17 on your verse sheet. Therefore, if anyone is in, in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away and behold, the new has come. And that new creation lives on not only an eternity, but can have joy and hope and peace and purpose um, from that point of conversion on um, through the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. 
I think Jesus' next statement in verses 22 and 23 probably infuriated the Pharisees because he again says that he is God. You know, one of the Old Testament names for God is judge. These men had plenty of head knowledge about the scriptures. They had come across without a doubt that use of um, the word uh, and the name of God as judge in their readings and studying. And I think they intellectually completely understood that God alone had the right to judge man. But Jesus is now explaining that God the Father has given him as the Son authority to judge all men. But here's a great and comforting truth. Jesus did not come at this time to judge the world. Remember with me John 3, 16 and 17 on your verse sheet. I think most of us have used these most weeks because it is a very foundational truth in the book of John. Look at it with me again. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Jesus offers salvation for all who believe. It was true then and is true now that there will be a future day when everyone will stand before him and the time for choosing will be finished. If you're with us in uh, Revelation 20, this will be, or in, when we studied Revelation last year, this verse in Revelation 20 might be familiar to me, to you. Look at it with me. This is also John writing. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it, and that is Jesus. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he is thrown into the lake of fire. Now those who belong to him by faith will be judged as righteous because Jesus' own blood has paid for and covered their sins in full. Those of us who know him by faith have our names written in the book of life, and we will spend eternity with God. Those who reject Jesus' gift of salvation and life have to be judged on their own deeds because Jesus' blood has not covered them, and they will be condemned because nobody is perfectly righteous on their own. We can only be made right by the blood. Jesus also flatly refutes here in these verses the idea that there are multiple paths to the Father because he says, if you don't honor me, you don't honor the Father. Um, he is the only path to eternal life, another foundational truth with far-reaching implications um, in our world. Verse 24 is another truly, truly statement. All who believe and hear Jesus have eternal life. I'm so grateful for that. And then another truly, truly comes right after that. He says that the time is coming and is here now when the dead will hear his voice and come alive. Now he isn't as much talking about heaven here as he is, which is true, but, but he's not talking about that as much here as he is emphasizing the reality that when we experience that spiritual rebirth at our salvation, we are then sealed with the Holy Spirit changed from the inside out. We are that new creation talked about in um, 2 Corinthians, but also listen to how Peter explains it in 2 Peter on your verse sheet. 
by His divine power, God has given us, that's believers, everything we need for living a godly life. We have received all of this by coming to know Him, the one who called us to Himself by means of His marvelous glory and excellence. And because of His glory and excellence, He has given us great and precious promises. These are the promises that enable you to share His divine nature and escape the world's corruption caused by human desires. And that is one good look at what it means to have a full life that He gives us. I hope I never, I hope we never get tired of hearing these fundamental truths. I hope we don't gloss over them when they sound very familiar. I woke up in a, just a funk a couple of weeks ago. It was a day or two after we had studied chapter three. And for some reason, I don't think it was random, I think it was the Holy Spirit. Um, I, uh, John 3, 16 and 17 that we just read came to mind. I will confess to you that I often have a tendency that I'm really working on now to gloss over in my mind, even when I'm reading the scriptures sort of just skim incredibly familiar verses like John 3:16. But I kind of had this prompting to get out my journal and just very slowly write out uh, 3:16 and 17 and sort of ponder it as I went along um, and pray my way through it. And I will tell you by the time I finished doing that, my fog had lifted um, and I was sort of in awe of the law, love and sacrifice um, of the Lord. And that became a lot bigger to me than whatever it was. I can't even remember now that circumstance that I woke up feeling just not good about. And that's the power of scriptures when we take the time um, with it. Um, even in these most basics of truth, they're so life-giving. Okay, so what is our response to what Jesus is teaching here? one response is to just slow down and savor the astonishing beauty and wonder of the gospel itself. I don't ever want us to get tired of hearing it. I want the simplicity of truth that we may have heard many times over speak into our daily circumstances. I want it to bring us comfort and peace. I hope we can remember to be astonished at that all-powerful creator of the universe who came as a man and therefore understands every hard thing we're going through because he lived it himself. And I'd be amazed that although he has all power and authority in the entire universe and over all of creation and beyond, he loves us and speaks to us and listens to us personally. I hope we can grab hold of that hope and healing that Jesus freely offers in the gospel truth. These truths are life-giving in every sense of his word. Okay, let's move on to the rest of chapter five. Once Jesus has given us his own testimony about who he is, he then transitions to presenting other witnesses who confirm the validity of his words and works. And I'm going to pick back up in verse 32. There is another who bears witness about me. He's the, he, he, he is his first, he gave testimony about himself first. And then he says, there's another who bears witness about me. And I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works, and now he's speaking about himself again, for the works 
that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe in, in the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God in you. And now let's skip down to 46. If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me, but if you do not, for he wrote of me, but if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? So when Jesus established his law early in Israel's history, he created a legal system, a framework for which would be, is surprisingly familiar for, to us today. I believe a good bit of our American legal system has its foundations in God's original uh, justice system, which is such a gift. Within this framework are protections for both victims of crime and the accused. And one of these protections that was the law of the day then was a requirement that there be two or three eyewitnesses uh, to establish guilt for a high crime. It's against this backdrop of that law that Jesus begins presenting witnesses to his judges, the Pharisees. And his, witness, his witnesses will all testify to the same one thing, that he is who he says he is, the Son of God and the Messiah. So here we'll see a total of five credible witnesses. Later in John, um, in further chapters, there will be a few others. I hope you'll keep your eyes open for those and sort of see those as they pop up. This should have been more than enough to establish the truth. But because they were dealing with a courtroom of the heart, far too many Jewish leaders would stand toe-to-toe -to -toe with Jesus, look at him, hear his words, see what he was doing, and choose to reject him anyway. Okay, so who's the first witness to Jesus' claims? It's, it's Jesus himself. Everything he said in the verses in this middle section that we just looked at uh, are his own claims about himself. And of course, it takes more than one's own testimony to establish um, innocence or truth. But I don't wanna overlook the fact here that Jesus' personal testimony is not like anyone else's personal testimony. If he were only a man, that would be true, but he is also God. He is the embodiment of truth. And so his testimony stands apart from the testimony of others. But in keeping with human law, Jesus also identifies these other witnesses, beginning with John the Baptist. So you might remember back in chapter one, uh, when we read about a day when John the Baptist is going about his work and he looks up and he sees Jesus coming and he calls out, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That was John being a true eyewitness to who Jesus is. And we think at this point um, in, the, uh, in chapter five, although we don't read about it in John, um, John the Baptist has probably already either been imprisoned or killed. Um, but Jesus reminds the Jews that it wasn't very long ago, probably just a few short months ago, at the height of John's popularity, that they were right there with him, liking what he said and uh, what they heard. It's only now 
when they've decided that Jesus is a threat to their power, that they decide John's not who they thought he was a few months earlier. But Jesus' third eyewitness to his identity are his miracles. Jesus calls his miracles works. John often calls them signs. At this point in the story, we've seen just a few. Remember, we watched Jesus turn the water into the wine at the wedding in Cana. And for his disciples that were there, those who did have a heart to see and believe, that display of his power was enough. John tells us that 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 miracle manifested his glory and his disciples believed. So those who heard about it now could also believe. The Pharisees who are questioning Jesus found, had just found out about this man um, who uh, couldn't walk and was healed. There would have been other witnesses to that as well. There will be many more miracles to come, some of which are recorded in John. And so for those who had a heart uh, that was open and willing to believe, the truth was right there in front of them. Jesus' miracles were these joyful awesome, life-altering events that backed up what he was saying about himself, and he calls them a witness to who he is. The fourth witness Jesus presents to the Pharisees is his own father. Together, the four Gospels record three different times that um, on, during Jesus' life on earth when the audible voice of God from heaven was heard by others. All three times were about his son, and the first one was at Jesus' baptism. So look with me um, at that in Matthew 3 on your verse sheet. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens opened, were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove, coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, on whom I am well pleased." Honestly, I can't think of how the voice of God thundering from heaven wouldn't be a credible witness, but these men weren't buying it here. Remember, the law only requires two or three credible witnesses to establish truth. Jesus is calling up his fifth here, and that fifth witness is Moses. And in my mind, I think he was saving, and the mind of the Pharisees at least, the best for last It's not just Moses also, but it's honestly all of Scripture written up into this point. The Pharisees were extremely well-versed in Scripture. They had deep um, academic knowledge of the Scriptures. They should have been able to see and hear what Jesus was doing and saying and set that beside their knowledge of the scriptures and understand and see that he was the establishment, the fulfillment of all that prophecy um, in the Old Testament that led up to this day, all the prophecy about the coming Messiah. Um, They should have seen that Moses was talking about Jesus when he said in Deuteronomy that God would raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers, and that it was to him you should listen. That was something they should have been able to see. For those who are willing to lay down their pride and open their eyes to what's right in front of them, Jesus generously offered many ways to understand and believe that he really was and is the Son of God, that he really did come to seek and save the lost, 
Jesus says these men could not see the truth in part because they were real busy and caught up in looking good for each other and kind of establishing their reputation in the community and honestly wanting glory for themselves and not worrying about the glory of God. But all that had knowledge and respect that they were building up in the community came to nothing because it was empty. It didn't lead them to a saving faith. It didn't lead them to a life of joy or hope or peace. You know, it can be easy for us to study God's word and come away with just head knowledge. Bible study is part of my daily routine. I can approach it if I'm not careful as part of my to-do list and check a box. I can also um, approach it mindlessly sometimes um, when I'm not careful. And honestly, letting what is in this book convict me and mold me and grow me and shape me is a lot harder than just getting head knowledge about it. Um, but I don't want myself or a single one of us to ever be like a Pharisee um, and miss out on the life and the joy uh, that Jesus has for us um, in his word. So this is my encouragement to each of us today. Listen deeply, listen humbly to Jesus day in and day out. Cultivate your own believing heart. Take what he says at his word. Allow him to shape you and mold you and grow you into a woman of deep faith. And when you do that, you can trust in the promise of Isaiah 58. And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. Let's pray together. Lord, you are good and you are great. I thank you for coming to earth. To, I thank you for your death and resurrection. I thank you for calling us. I thank you um, for making us women who are yours. I thank you for the power of your word to mold us and shape us and change us. Lord, I pray that we would be that kind of women that stand firm on the foundation of our faith, that look to you for all that we want and need, that recognize your good gifts when they come, I also pray that we would be women who have your word on our lips so that we can share the truth that we have with a lost and dying world. Lord, I pray that you'd bless every woman who is um, with us today, um, that your grace and mercy would just cover over her life um, and every part of it. And we're grateful to you, Lord, and we're glad to do this with you. And it's in your holy name we pray. Amen.